It's lovely to see. If you don't know me, my name's Tom. If you're here, maybe you're checking us out or you're, I don't know, you just feel prompted, whatever, to be in church tonight. You are really, really welcome to, to be here today. And what we're going to do now is just going to think a little bit about the passage that uh, Matt's just read to us. And uh, over the pre-Christmas, um, we were... Oh, they're dirty. Bar crack on anyway. Um, the, the glasses, that is. just uh, it's, so, it's so bright, it just if they're smudged, you really see it, which is a bit annoying. But anyway, I'll press on, folks. Um, before Christmas, we took a break from a series we look at called Exiles and Ambassadors. And we looked at joy and Christmas. Hooray! And, <laughs> and we went into 2022 thinking it'd be the end of COVID. Hey, and here we are. So, um, but we're back on it, exiles and ambassadors. Why, why are we looking at that? Because there's a good uh, portion of the scriptures where God's people are taken into exile. In other words, super brief, they're taken from their place, their home, and they're taken into captivity to a place far, far, far away from home. And there's a kind of a beautiful story. We're looking at Nehemiah, particularly in the morning, this amazing man called by God to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls after years and years and years of devastation. In some sense, it's a prophetic call to us in the city. One of the things that inspires, certainly inspires me as a leader of this church in this season is uh, Jeremiah 29, which is where um, the people of God are taken from their home, placed in Babylon. And Babylon is nothing like Jerusalem. It is like, it is, it's, they don't share any values, they just don't share their religious identity. It is just a place they do not want to be. But God's calling is in that city to seek its peace, seek its prosperity, to pray for it. And it's people that you'd never want to pray for. And, it, and it's a city that you'd never want. It's, 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 a, it's a city you'd never want to see it grow and prosper. And that's what God calls them to do. And so we see these themes of cities are really important particularly in the Old Testament around, we see that Nehemiah is called to rebuild Jerusalem as exiles are called to return. And then that notion of exile is then what the Apostle Paul calls in the New Testament, this idea of we're an ambassador, we're sent by God. We belong to one place and we're sent to another, which means if you're in Sheffield today, there's a very strong possibility that God has something for you to do in the city for such a time as this. Which is why in this COVID season, we've not changed really what we said God called us to do because these days are full of opportunity. Alpha tomorrow night, eight o'clock, we're on Zoom. And you might think, oh, Zoom, that's not so good. Do you know um, the guys who have uh, really developed the Alpha course over many years say, do you know, it's more popular on Zoom than it is in person because it's safer because you, you don't even need to leave your own home. You can just be on Zoom, you'd be online and join the conversation. And so today we're tracking through Paul's, the Apostle Paul's second uh, missionary journey. The Apostle Paul wrote a good chunk, if not the majority, of the New Testament. One of the most amazing church planters that we've ever known. Just an amazing, amazing man. And so we're tracking what what happens to him in Acts chapter 17, because we're because what we see from him is this kind of amazing church planter extraordinaire. We we're asking the question, always as we approach the scriptures, what is it can we learn from it today? What, is it, what can we apply in the context to our own lives in Sheffield in 2022 in COVID? 
That's the task before us tonight, folks. What I want to say super quickly is if if cast our minds back to Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in Philippi and meets a lady called Lydia, who plants a church with a a woman of real... um, She's just a very, very influential lady. And we talked about why I think, and the the real posture of this church is why God uses women to lead churches and to teach. Not everybody thinks that, but we do. One of the reasons we think that is because of Phoebe, my youngest daughter, is called Phoebe, and she's feisty, a bit like Phoebe in the Bible. And and, uh, we see that Lydia is this very deeply influential woman, and we see that then Paul has a tough time with Silas, he's kind of partnering crime in prison. And it's worth saying that by the time we get to Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, as sometimes it's called, Paul and Silas have walked probably about 100 miles or so. And I've written this down through the Ignatian Way, it's through the peninsula, kind of uh, the Macedonian coast. So they're tracking about 30 miles a day. That is some serious, serious walking. And the reason that I find that really interesting is because when Paul is in jail and he's beaten quite, he's actually beaten quite badly by the magistrates in Philippi, that some scholars say that that, that Paul never physically recovers from his time in Philippi. He carries around him in his physical body the the effects of, of the violence that he suffers at the hands of the people in Philippi. And so in Acts chapter 17, in Thessaloniki, it ends in another riot. And, it's a, and so when Paul rocks up in a city, it generally kicks off, and it kind of makes us think about the gospel is offensive. Like when, you really, when we really say and unpack its claims, it's generally going to divide opinion. Jesus divides opinion. Like people killed him. There's a guy who used to work here called Richard Goodman. And I remember he famously stood here and he said in his beautiful Scouse accent, Jesus had some hard times. I think the crucifixion, folks, was a hard time. But Jesus divides opinions. Some people love him and some people vehemently dislike him. And so in this context of of Paul has left Philippi, and he's making his way on his journey, following the call from the Lord to go to Macedonia. He's making his way now to Thessaloniki, carrying the physical scars of what it is to serve Jesus. And you know, sometimes I forget that. Now, sometimes if I'm frustrated because Netflix won't work, oh, you know, life is hard. There's parts of places around the world where being a Christian is really hard. Where you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've got to get out of where you live. And they're often the places where the gospel is grown in the most phenomenal ways. There's a cost. And Paul is carrying that cost and arrives in Thessaloniki. And I just want to talk a little bit through about what it is that Paul does here, because I think it's really fascinating. First thing that Paul does is he arrives at the Jewish synagogue. We know that the Apostle Paul is a skilled, trained rabbi. He's trained around a man called Gamaliel, who is one of the most... He's like, if you're into Christian preachers, he's like the Jewish John Mark Comer. If you get around this guy, you are made. 
and or like if you're like is like a Timothy Keller, he's just an incredibly well-known Jewish rabbi. And the way the Jewish rabbinic schools w- would work is that you would do your parents would do your their level best to get you with the best rabbi. And Paul was trained. He was an absolute genius. And so he approaches the synagogue as is his custom. And there's a kind of missional principle there. When arriving in a new place, go to the, Paul goes to the people that he knows. Often, there's a temptation for us as believers to think, well, let's go for the most adversarial person that we know, like the most ardent atheist, and argue them into the kingdom. Nicky Gumbel, who, who has really um, taken the Alpha course and developed it really to what it is today, always says this, and I think it's a point that I've never forgotten. Nobody's ever argued into the kingdom. And so the Apostle Paul goes to his people, the Jewish people. And what we know is he's there for, is he went to the synagogue for three Sabbath days. So essentially Paul spends about three weeks, so three Shabbats, three Saturdays, talking about Jesus. And Paul, he says here, and that he would reason from them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the, is the Messiah, he said. And what essentially that means is the Apostle Paul is then tracking through the old te- what we call the Old Testament, particularly four particular chapters of Isaiah called the Suffering Servant Passages. And if you have some notes, uh, they're worth reading. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 7. And probably the most famous is Isaiah 52, verses 13 into Isaiah 53, verse 12. And if you read Isaiah 53, it will describe Jesus as, uh, it describes Jesus in the most amazing detail. And so what the Apostle Paul is essentially saying to the, to, um, the Thessalonians, he's, he's saying, look, if you track through the arc of Scripture, you will see that it describes the Messiah. And you'll see not only that it describes the Messiah, but the Messiah will come and the Messiah will suffer. And some theologians say Paul is probably emphasizing that point because he has the physical ailments now of somebody who's suffering for for Jesus. And so he begins to say that as Jesus suffers, takes on our sin, as he is beaten, as he is... that we see that the, the, the nature of Jesus' walk is to suffer. And for the Jewish people listening, that would have been unbelievably offensive because their view was that the Messiah would come, the clouds would part, and they would boot out the Romans. And Paul says, no, it says it, it, says it in the book. And so what he would do for three Saturdays, for hours he would go back and forth discussing the scriptures locating it particularly in Isaiah in other chapters in other books too but would say this is Jesus that he walked amongst us now for the apostle Paul is always the crucifixion but also that Jesus rises from the dead and so he would debate and discuss always looking for people that he knows people who he has some connection with from his perspective as growing up a Jew and a rabbi 
And verse 4 tells us that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. What a weird thing to say. Now Luke, who writes the Gospel, Luke, who we understand is a medic. Any medics in the house? That's good. I'd actually feel quite unwell, so I'm glad you're here. Brings a real sense of relief, doesn't it? No, there's medics in the house. Although you weren't very enthusiastic, I have to say. So maybe, maybe the NHS. We need to pray for you guys. Um, and so, so he, he lists these people. So, so there, is a con- there is a conversion of, of Jewish people, God-fearing Greeks. It's people who are open to God, people for whom the Lord is working. There, there, there's often, even in, throughout, throughout, the, throughout particularly the New Testament, people who um, are, are Greek, and are really fascinated by God. And so they're drawn to Paul. And then he mentions quite a few prominent women. Now it's worth saying, as when we discussed, um, when we talked about Lydia, there is something in Macedonian culture at this time that just raises up really strong women. Amen. And what is happening is the, the, the women are incredibly influential, and that's why Luke mentions them. Because it would seem really weird in our context today in 2020. There's quite a few prominent women. Why would you mention it? Because it's counter-cultural. And so Luke is just drawing attention to that. And then it says in verse 5, it says, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Folks, this, the, you may think this happened in the White House last year. No, folks. It's in the book. It happened a little while ago. And it says, They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. Okay, I want to talk about the riots in just a moment. Because you read it and think it's totally unbelievable. And then you watch the news and think, no, it's it's possible. So who's, who's Jason? And why do they rush to Jason's house? Why does he mention prominent women? Why does he mention the Jews? Why does he mention the God-fearing Greeks? Well, here's the thing. Thessaloniki or Thessalonica, whatever you want to call it, is about its population of 200,000 people. That is, in the ancient Near East, that is a massive city. It's absolutely huge. It's like, I don't know, New York or... So, uh, 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 kind of one of these enormous cities in Asia. It's growing and growing and growing. It's an absolutely humongous city. And so Paul's presence is causing some stir. It really is causing quite... Because he, because he is affecting the religious temperature of the city. And he is attracting opposition, particularly from Jewish people, because of the folks who are converting, who would ordinarily go to the synagogue and give their money to the synagogue, are now going to church and give their money to church. And if it's true that money, sex, and power are three things that trap our hearts, then money talks, folks. And so even these Jewish people are very devout, like looking at the shekels on their app, on their mobile phones... And thinking, flip, we've got less shekels. How are we going to make ends meet? Why is this happening? Well, Paul is bad for business, folks. And so scholars say that is one of the reasons that they get, they, they get a rabble together. Because Paul is changing the very economic fabric of the city. Just think about it. 
When the presence of God moves powerfully in a city, it changes it. 200,000 people. God is moving so dramatically that people are feeling it in their pocket. If you read Acts further on, and and I would encourage you, if you read the New Testament, read Acts alongside it because it kind of tracks through. If you wait till Paul gets to Ephesus, it makes the most dramatic change in a city because the human heart changes in the most amazing way. Now, here's the thing. The reason that they go, the rabble go looking for Jason is that Jason runs a house church. The church meets in homes. And one of the amazing things around house churches that we track throughout the New Testament is their social order. Let me just, it's worth saying, whenever you're reading the New Testament, we always have to, have to understand that it's not 2022 Sheffield. And whilst in British society we have a classes, I was talking to a guy this morning actually who's from Sheffield who lives now in New Zealand and he's managed to get out um, with all this crazy stuff around COVID. He was like, man, I went to London, no one's wearing a mask. In New Zealand you get arrested for that. And he was just, and he, and he was saying that, and he's about to move to Australia, he was saying they're very, very flat societies. So, so he's like, that. his view on why Novak Djokovic is having a hard time, it's like, in Australia, if you're a celebrity, they're like, come on, mate, the rules is rules, deal with it. He's like, where he's not as obsessed with celebrities as are perhaps in this country. And so when, you, when we're tracking with what's happening in Thessalonica, their society is really, really, really complicated. There are some people who would never spend time with anybody else. You'd just never be seen dead with them. It's just not something that you do. You wouldn't have necessarily prominent women. We don't know the Jews or not, but you just wouldn't have this makeup of people ever in, in one place at one time, except there is one place, and it's called the Church of Jesus Christ. And so what you have here is a ragtag group of people that meet around a table in somebody's home. In this case, it's Jason's home, but there's most probably other places around the city where people are coming together to learn the scriptures, to operate in the gifts of the Spirit that the Apostle talks about, to function in their fivefold ministry we read about in Ephesians chapter 4, to be the body of Christ, to function like Jesus. And it's the most beautiful, powerful thing when it works. It is a radical statement. It is a prophetic act a counteract to a culture which seeks division. It is a prophetic act that describes Jesus because it's a picture of unity and it reflects him. Different creeds and colors coming together in one place. Men and women side by side. Jason in the Greek is known as the pater, the father. And there is a sociologist by the sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. And what he tells us is that excavations in Rome, in the villas, because Jason was a man of means, and often the church met in large houses. Praise Jesus for people of means. Because that's where the church meets. And often they help fund the work of the mission. It's never, it's not change, folks. 
actually. So they meet in his home, reflecting something like Jesus. And do you know what? What they found as they excavated villas in, in, in Rome is that in the sewers were skeletons of tiny babies. Because the pater had so much power in the Roman Empire that when his wife or maybe some girl he decided to rape or have sex with gave birth to a girl, he would stand over the young woman and say, I don't want to keep this, it's a girl, flush it away. That was the barbaric nature of the misogyny that existed in some of these cultures. But when they encountered Jesus, the house churches functioned in the most dramatically different way. And it's a foretaste, folks, as we head into February, as we look at vision for the life of our church, in an epidemic of loneliness which we face. There's a question for us as a church to rethink. Here is this block, this building block of the church where people gathered in homes around a table. All kinds of people rubbing shoulders side by side, operating in the gifts of the Spirit, operating in the fivefold to function like Jesus. Why? We believe that Genesis tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that we are made in the image of God. That means that when I look in the mirror and I don't always like what I see, I have to remember that God didn't make a mistake when he made me. Yes, I'd like a bit more hair. But actually, my wife can spend it on her getting her hair cut. So I kind of think the economics all balances out quite well, really. But for years and years and years, I didn't really like what I saw in the mirror. Until a very wise, godly man once said to me, you need to meditate on the fact that you're made in his image. It means in the whole of creation that human beings are the apple of his eye. I find that mind-blowing. That when you look in the mirror, you might not like what you see. I wish I had less wobbly bits. I wish I had a body of Adam, Beatty, whatever, I don't know. But he looks at you and says, I've made you in my image. And as partly that as we begin to walk with Jesus and he restores that, that we begin to realize that actually that, he, that, that as we walk as restored people, we begin to look like him and reflect him. And you see, as good 2022 Sheffield Christians, we go, yeah, that makes sense. But you know, if we look at it in the context of the Bible, me understanding my con- myself as made in God's image is only part of the equation. When we come together in a community of people, sharing our gifts with one another, functioning with people from different places and different backgrounds, that's when collectively we become truly the image of God. And that, folks, is the vision of the church.
And that's why it was such a radical movement of disciples in the Roman Empire. It was unstoppable. It was beautiful. It was attractive. It was the most beautiful thing, which is why when the crazies that had been, it says here, the bad characters, I love that, the bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob and started the riot in the city. They knew where to look. And they looked in the house church. It says here, but when they didn't find, they dragged Jason, some of the other believers, before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble. Listen to these words. These men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. In fact, he bankrolled the whole thing. He was guilty as charged. And then listen to these words. It says, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. You see, when God's people come together, as described in Jason's house, God promises his presence where two or three are gathered, actually the scripture says, that God is there by his presence. And if we're citizens of another place, when we gather together in his name, we become an embassy of that other place. So if we're going to be an ambassador, we need an embassy. And of course the beautiful thing about an embassy is an embassy is protected, it's safe, it belongs to the other place. It belongs to the kingdom. And you see, as the rioters began to stir up trouble in Thessalonica, they landed on something true, which was the heart cry of the house church, which was the heart cry of the embassy, and that is this, Jesus is Lord. Now, we can say that now. Let's all say, I'm going to say one, two, three, and we're going to say Jesus is Lord. One, two, three, Jesus is Lord. Well, that's fine. Because the police aren't going to come and get us here. I mean, they might do in North Korea, in a public gathering like this. We'd be done. Or maybe parts of China. Or I've got a friend who is a church planter in Malaysia. If we did that there, it would be a different story. Because we may be infiltrated by the police, they take our names, we suddenly find our internet's not working, all of a sudden the cash isn't going, suddenly our visa's revoked, kids aren't in school anymore, we find ourselves out of there. You see, there was one Caesar, the emperor who ran the whole of the Roman Empire, he was lord. And so there was this cultic worship that you say that, that he is lord. There was this sense in which he was the great man sent from the gods who was going to bring Pax Romana, Roman peace. He was the one who was going to sort it out. And you would pay homage to him all of the time. Except not the believers who followed Jesus. Their heart cry as they met together was that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They share the creeds and the confessions of old and they would confess that Jesus is Lord. And do you know what that made them guilty of? Treason. And so the rabble begins to get them, and to stir them, and bring them out. 
And actually in the Greek it says the polytarch, which means the kind of city magistrates had to deal with this growing restlessness of the early believers that were stirring a city because they met in people's homes. They defied the culture of the day. They lived and dwelt in the most beautiful unity. They functioned as God's image bearers when they met together and did the things that Jesus called them to do. And their heart cry was, Jesus is Lord. And it was the heart cry that was treason in Thessaloniki. And it doesn't go very well for Paul and Silas. And we don't know, actually. All we, what, we, what we do know is that Paul spent definitely three weeks conversing with the Jewish people in the synagogues. We don't quite know how long he was there in total. People can't decide on that. We do know it's from there that he formed his church. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians, the back and forth. We know that's when he begins to plant the church and then the, the kind of later the correspondence and the communication. So the question is, as we, as we hear this story of how how the church is formed in Thessaloniki. There's a question that I think that we need to ask, or certainly I'm asking, is it, what stops us living like that? Like, what stops us living? What stops us turning a city upside down? Do you know, I'm not entirely sure. It's it's a big moment. What stops us living like this? Well, let me tell you. Why don't you actually focus on, I'm going to level with you. I'm not entirely sure, but I think there might be one thing that I'd love just to spend a couple of minutes unpacking and then we'll come into land and I've got one further thing I want to share. The truth is, that, and, and I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. And you know, my observation is when I mention it, people just go, oh, just get a little heavier and a little heavier and a little heavier. And I want to talk about consumption. Because I don't know about you, but I'm an, I am an A-star student when it comes to consumption. And I'll tell you why. Because when I put on, when I get the old Amazon Fire Stick going and we've got it on our house, and if it just whirs and whirs and whirs, I'm like, come on, what is wrong with this thing? I get frustrated and I get frustrated. I, I am an archetypal consumer. And, they, and so I would gently, folks, and humbly want to suggest, so are we. Yeah? Is there anybody there? (laughs) Because we breathe it in all the time. We see thousands and thousands of images every day. As a as I realize this ages me, but as a parent of three children, the biggest cause of tension in our house, folks, is not big, deep theological questions. Was Jesus bodily raised from the dead? They're not the questions that kick off in our house. The, question that's co- the thing that causes us most stress is where is the remote control? Folks, that causes an unbelievable amount of stress. I'm not going to lie. But the argument is what can we, who's going to watch what on telly? Because the older two don't want to watch Paw Patrol. They really don't. And they think it's very cute that my youngest dresses up as Sky with her wings and she's coming in. But honestly, they don't want to watch it. They want to watch something else. And the thing is we've got choice. Consumption gives us choice. It means that we're bombarded with images, and those images, as nice as they are, begin to define us. So if I'm driving an Audi, which I don't, by the way, folks, um, if you want to bless me with one, I'd take it to the Lord and see what he wanted to say. But um, 
It's a status symbol, and it's a complicated system which has evolved over decades and decades and decades, which is where we are now. And the complexity is the consumption rewires. Uh, we know that, that social media, if you don't believe me, it's re- watch Social Dilemma. It's, it, it's on the internet, so it must be true. But it changes the way that we relate to one another. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, it's Tuesday night, it's homebrew night, you've had a long day, you think, nah, I'm knackered. So you get on your WhatsApp group, but you don't really tell the truth. I'm not feeling very well. And you look at you, oh, I wish I tested positive for COVID, I, wouldn't get, I could get out of it. Or, like, we, we, we might come to church and you think, oh, I don't know. It, it, it affects the way that we relate to one another. And I'm saying this because it's true, folks. I'm not saying anything that we don't know. But if we're going to say Jesus is Lord, then the reality of saying Jesus is Lord is that that we like to worship Jesus because he's good and he's nice and he affirms us and he loves us. But by saying Jesus is Lord is that Jesus has a view around how we live our lives. Now, that's not so cool, folks. Because he might tell me how to live my life. Like, he has a view around your sex life. Now, hang on a minute, Jesus. When we got into this thing, that, you know, affirmation, tick, dying on the cross, set me free. I like a bit of that. But Jesus, do you really think you can tell me about to do the things of sex? Can we go there, Jesus? Well, he's Lord or isn't. Money. Now hang on a minute. (laughs) Jesus. I think you'll find I earn my money. And I'll spend it as early. If I want to buy an iPhone, I can't give to the church. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just struggling a bit at the minute. But my iPhone 10 or whatever it is, 12 or whatever. What what have you got, Sam? The the, the 11. Yeah, beautiful that, mate. My iPhone 11. I can find the money for that. I just get a couple of coffees and because my money. Well, if he's Lord, see why it's offensive, can't you? Because when you start to celebrate how they live their lives, it's like, hang on a minute, I'm down with affirmation. Yeah, dig that. Oh, I'm a child, I'm a child of God. Let's talk about your internet search history. But Jesus... Are you really Lord? And you can see why. He caused the stir. And I think one of the complexities of when we think around consumption is that it redefines. We can often think we come to Jesus on our own terms, but actually we come to him on his terms. And we live in a world, we breathe it in, day in, day out. Consumption defines the way that we live, defines in many ways the way that we think. And part of following Jesus radically as Lord, meeting in communities, we'll talk about more as we get into February and on, is a radical defiance against the culture in which we live, actually. It's a prophetic heart cry that says, I'm going, to value, I'm going to choose you and this community over and above how I feel. I'm going to worship Jesus 
irrespective of how I feel because of who you are. I'm going to choose to serve you. I'm going to choose, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, to bear with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to be with you when you speak into my life and I don't like it because I haven't given you permission because I'm in control. No, I'm going to come and I'm going to, we are going to journey together. We're going to do life together. I'm going, to, I'm going to share my life with you. You're going to speak into my life because I am choosing you. I'm going to choose agape love. I'm going to surrender who I am to, for you, for the sake of you to see you being better. Not because of what I can take. Not because of how it pleases me. Not because of what I get out of it. Because of him who has laid down his life upon the cross and has poured into me life of forgiveness of hope. From that posture, I now pour into you my family, my church family. And I'm going to be here for you when I really don't want to be. Because that's the call. Because he is Lord. I said this would be spiky. (laughs) And so what we learn in chapter 8 is this. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made, J- then they made Jason and the others postponed and let them go. Essentially what they did was a deal. Paul and Silas need to go. So Jason coughed up some cash and they came up with a deal. And Paul and Silas left because they turned it the city upside down. What would turn Sheffield 2022 upside down? I think it would be believers whose heart cry is Jesus is Lord. Who will love each other fearlessly. Embrace new people. Seek out and love the neighbour when we don't want to do it and choose him. I'm not saying that you delete Netflix. I love it. We're working through the money heist. <laughs> and I love that show. I, I'm, not say, I'm, not saying do, I'm not saying cover up your TV or the lost box of some Pentecostals I don't used to call it. I'm not saying any of that, folks. I'm saying let's... <laughs> stay with me I'm saying we need to be wise about the culture in which we live and I'm saying we need to recognise the way that consumption defines the way that we think and the way that we relate to each other and I'm saying that we're called to a prophetic act about how to live we know that we are screwing up our planets through overconsumption so it's not like this is rocket science The whole creation groans because we're messing it up. We know that buying clothes made in sweatshops in another part of the world is not a sustainable thing to do. And we know it's not kind and godly for the people doing it. We know that we need to think about our choices, our consumer choices. We know all that stuff. And yet somehow it still defines us. So what I'm saying is that the scriptures call us to a radical life where we choose other people. 
my wife and I have been talking over Christmas about where we live. Where we live now, we have a beautiful house. Honestly, get ordained in the Church of England. You only work one day a week and you get a free house. It's an amazing deal. It really is. It really is. <laughs> and we live set back. We've got a long drive, so live, surrounded by lovely big houses. Next door's got a big gated drive. Uh, I, I think they want people to go around, but you've got to get through the buzzer. And we're like, well, how do we live missionally here? Like, what does it look like? To, cause, and we've got little kids, so they're very noisy, so that always gets comes. And we've got a dog now. And so we were like, well, why don't, what's it look like for us to gather some other people who live in our area? And we say, let's just pray. Let's, pr- let's get a map and let's prayer walk this uh, neighborhood. And let's, we, we have a thing on Saturday morning. We do breakfast. And so we've taken stuff around to people. We press the buzzer. Hello, can you let us in? Yeah, okay. Uh, the gate's open. We're in. Come on. It's like the money heist. Grab what you can. And, and they let us in. And we talk to them. We say to the kids and... Best behavior when we go in, don't embarrass. I've told you. Hi, I'm the vicar. Theo, sit still. I need to poo. No, you don't. Do you have a toilet? Thank you so much. It's all good. It's, it's very smooth. But it's a sense of which, um, what does it look like for us to, 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 to live in it? Not, I mean, we're not as radical as these guys. But it's like, what's it look like to, because we don't want to, live just a Sunday Christian life because that's not what Jesus calls us to do. So that's the questions we're asking in the big gated houses of the middle classes who can hide behind money but the human heart is the same no matter where you live. That's the call. And so as you track with uh, Acts chapter 17, what does the Lord say to you? about his lordship in your life. And if you're here today and you feel, you know, he's not really lord of my life, um, let me encourage you, he's not always lord of mine. But the spirit of God just always taps me on the shoulder and says, come back, come back. When my my mother-in-law and was my father-in-law, they got divorced, they got married, they they bought a house in South London off my um, wife's grandparents' big house and uh, the bizarre deal where her my wife's grandfather kept a key to the front door and they stored all their stuff in the biggest room of the house downstairs i don't know who agrees to that but it's one of those weird things that families do anyways bizarre and i've always thought around that if, if our if our lives are like homes to have to jesus to truly be lord means he has the keys to everything And there are no rooms where he's not allowed in. So in my house, my eldest daughter sometimes brought, do not enter. And honestly, tell you, you risk your life. As you knock on the door and you can have a conversation via diplomacy, you're allowed in. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're giving him the key. And we're saying, Jesus, if if my heart has got lots of rooms in it, you can go into any of them. There are no no-go areas for you, Lord. Are there, no, are there areas, if your life was a house with lots of rooms, are there no no-go areas for Jesus? And if that's the case, then tonight, I want to say to you, 
give him the key because you won't regret it. And one of the things that stops us is we think we have a better vision of what our life will look like if we keep control over those rooms. But my testimony is you give him the key. And it, he does the immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. And we're going to respond to that in a minute. I just want to say one thing. It's not really related particularly to the scripture, although it's, um, it's kind of inspired by what we've talked about today. And I want to just put a little fire break in there and say we're going to, we're going to pray in a f- few moments. Um, and I just want to talk about one extra thing. I've just lost my notes a little bit. I'm out of sync. Uh, folks, um, years and years ago, I was a young person. Um, I, was a, I was a student once, and uh, it was a long time ago now, about 23, 23 years ago. I can just about remember it. And I remember writing to uh, somebody who uh, worked for an organization called Fusion. They, for the record, this has been recorded, they are an amazing organization. And I wrote to them, uh, a lady called Ruth Valerio, actually, um, who now runs Tear Fund. It's a bit awkward. Bearing in mind, I was uh, an undergraduate, uh, I was doing an undergraduate theology degree at the University of Hull. And as Edmund Blackadder once said, there are three good colleges in England, Oxford, Cambridge, and Hull. So it wasn't like, you know, I was Martin Luther or anything like that. Let's be brutal. But I decided to write to Fusion. And I wrote to them and and I said, uh, I'd just like to give you some feedback. I'm just embarrassed. And I wrote to them and said, I just want to think, they, they produced these amazing resources for, for cell groups. And I wrote to them and I said, I just want to say, um, I think your cell notes are not biblical. All the best, Tom. From my lofty vantage point, folks, of, of my excessive uh, career in theology at that point. And, they, and I got a very, very gracious response, actually. Far more gracious than I deserved. Oh, I say that because uh, I've worked with university students now for on and off. I mean, I don't do it now, but for 20-odd for, for years since I was it. I love it. I, I, I am of the view that, um, I think it's about 60,000 students, if not more, in Sheffield, that the, the next generation of teachers, thought leaders, doctors, nurses... Uh, quantity surveyors, architects, whatever, uh, are, are right now on a, not on campus, obviously, unless they're really keen, unless it's going to go on essay in tomorrow or exams and things like that. Um, uh, our thought leaders, our politicians right to, of tomorrow right now are on a university campus. And if statistics are, tr- statistics are right, there ain't many Christians, folks. So it's one of the most amazing mission fields I think that there is right now. And I also know, and our church is in a tricky position because we don't have a student worker. We have Sam. <laughs> steady now, folks. Steady on. You'll get a big head. And we've got Chris. Hey. I was being a bit more for Chris, just to keep you humble. Um, he's very good on guitar as well. No, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just to keep you humble, Sam. And so I realize if you're a student here, it's a little tricky. It's a bit of like, what are we doing? We are desperately uh, be seeking the Lord for somebody to come and work with students. And I think the Lord has answered that prayer, and we'll talk about more of that over the next couple of months. Having worked with students over the years, I know that sometimes there is often a tension around how we understand and interpret the Bible. 
And I also understand that sometimes it's very easy to say, well, they're not biblical, or they don't do this, or they don't do that. Because I have done it myself. I wrote to a leader of an organization. That's, that's how much I have done it, folks. But now, 20-odd years old, I also know it can be really damaging. And it can be not great for unity. And if Paul tells us to edify one another, saying that we're not teaching the Bible is not always very helpful. I want to say something about what do we... What, I'm not going to talk about this for long, but I want to address something. The reason I'm saying it is because there are people in our church who are saying that about our church. And the Bible says that what is sh- you shout from the rooftops what's whispered in quiet places. And this has been whispered in quiet places. Alan and I have some conversations with some folks. The reason I mention it publicly, and it will go out on YouTube for the whole world, because they all do, they all love it to see... <laughs> is because some other folks in our church who are not part of students have begun to feed back to say, do you know this is what people are saying? And I think it's therefore right, as the leader of the church, to say right. In Denmark, they have a wonderful phrase. It's called fiskenpartisken, and it means put the fish on the dish. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds, if you say it's Danish, people are like, oh, cool. Let's just kind of, let's get it out into the ether, folks. We believe a couple of things, folks. As a church, well, as the leader of this church, let me just want to say something super clear. I share the absolute conviction that the whole summary of our Christian expression is not just Sundays. I think we are called to plant churches and give stuff away, but I absolutely believe we are called to recover the power and the beauty and the missional oomph which turns the Roman Empire upside down in households of faith. That is where discipleship happens because people are annoying and we're called to love them and do life with them side by side. That is where we are called to embrace the scriptures. That is where we are called to hear what it is that God is saying. Sundays, folks, is the place that we will gather together more and more and hear the stories of what the Spirit of God is doing in our city through our communities and through our church plants. Folks, I am not Timothy Keller. I am not John Mark Comer. And you know, I'm me. I will preach and teach the way that Tom Finnemore does it. Sometimes I'll be great. Most of the times I'll be okay. And the rest of the times you're like, what the heck is he talking about? Folks, if you are in our church, you are joining a family. We are not some East Coast megachurch or West Coast megachurch or trying to push an online platform of Bible teaching when that's not who we are. But we are a bunch of ragtag people who feel called by Jesus to take what little we've got and love this city into life. And folks... Do I believe in the pre... I I think I do, and I think that we do it. But not everybody thinks that we do. And you know, I respect that. And this is what I would say. If being in our church causes you to sin, 
So if you come here and you're like, doing it again. This story's got nothing to do with the passage. Um, what I would say is this. If you can't come before, because there's a real temptation there. There's a real temptation. to Part of the call for us is to say, Jesus, speak to me today. That's what my prayer. And if you've got a passion for the scriptures, I want to say, amen. I want to say, who are you reading? Which theologians? I'd love to talk to you. And you know, maybe Jesus is calling you to go teach the scriptures in small groups and with people who don't know him. Because there are 60,000 young students who don't know him. And I would, I, I, everything, fibre in my being wants to defend ourselves. But you know, I feel that we need to leave the defending part to him. And we need to go reach people who are far from him, actually. And if you're here and, and we do your head in, which we probably will, I will mess it up, folks, and get it wrong. If you, by being here, are getting more and more angry, then from the bottom of my heart, I want to say, be released to go somewhere where you're going to, find, you're going to go and say, this is my home. And if it is Christchurch, well, I love those guys. They, they, no, I mean, those guys preach different, but they love Jesus. And they love this city. And they're planting churches. And if it is there, God, if it is the well, go there. They're beautiful people. But if you're going to stay here and get angry, don't. Be released. Secondly, if you're going to stay here and you're going to talk about it with others, there's a potential to cause disunity. And you know, you're going to have to take that up directly with Jesus because he has a view on unity. And you know, the Bible that some people say we're not teaching has something to say around honour and respect for leaders. And I don't want to be one of those leaders who says, you must honour me. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to hear me say that. But I will say it is painful when say stuff. people say stuff that isn't true. But this guy was beaten within an inch of his life. Jesus hung on a cross, so we're in great company, and nobody's doing that to me yet. So if you can't be here, it's causing you to sin. I'd say go somewhere else for the sake of your heart. Secondly, if you're talking to other people about it or getting on the whatever on WhatsApp, then I'd say, um, guys, I'd say, don't, don't, be part of creating disunity and secondly there'll be people who have no idea what you're talking about or people who encounter Jesus don't lead them astray don't cause anyone to stumble 23 years ago I was the guy writing to a national student organisation saying you're not teaching the Bible Jesus forgive me I know in the intensity of the student Christian world, it's so easy to do that stuff. It's so easy to do that stuff. From an old, uh, middle-aged man, let me share my heart with you. The devil loves to distract us. But there is a city that is hurting right now that we're called to reach. And if you want to be with us doing it, stick with us. But I'm not going to end, I'm not going to debate Calvinism or cessationism or whether this, I'm just not going to do that, folks. Alan would love to do that. (laughs) 
But if you want to stick around and you want to supplement the lack of deep teaching with John Mark Comer, knock yourself out. But if you're here but you love Sheffield and you want to be a part of it, stick around.